0: Hello, and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering and related topics. I'm your host, Sean Faulkner, and today I'm joined by Bjorn Ovik, head of fintech at Skyflow. And we'll be talking about the privacy and security for payment processing. Bjorn, welcome to the show. Hi, Sean. Great to be here. Thanks. Uh, so, I think one of my favorite things about hosting this show is I get to talk to a lot of really smart and very experienced people. And as sort of the audience is, you know, hopefully learning from them, I'm also learning from the guests. And I think today is definitely no exception. Bjorn, you've probably forgotten more about the FinTech industry, the payment industry in the last 30 seconds of my rambling than all other personally know. So it's great to have you here and to help shed some light on this. But to start, can you please introduce yourself?
1: Yeah. Uh- Bjorn um again, oversee our uh, fintech and payment uh, business here at Skyflow. My background uh, for the last 20 plus years has been in financial services payments. Um, I've worked at companies like Visa, uh, PayPal, uh, Samsung Pay, uh, American Express, um, and actually grew up at Wells Fargo when uh, e-commerce uh, was just starting. And we built out a lot of the first uh, PayFact models uh, and uh, multi-seller models there. So, um, yeah. So, uh, all things payments and financial services.
0: Yeah. As you mentioned, you have a pretty impressive background working for a lot of sort of big name companies in the you know financial industry like Wells Fargo and American Express, Visa. The list kind of goes on and on and even even founding your own company at one point. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how you ended up actually gravitating towards that industry. and what was like your educational background that actually led to you know spending the bulk of your career in this space?
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's interesting. I actually started out uh, my first job out of college as an analyst for a, a big uh, computer um, uh, uh, publishing organization, network computing, Information Week, and so on. And our publisher actually at the time went over to a company called Netopia. Um, and that's, you know, I kind of fell into, uh, payments at that time. And this was gosh, 99, 2000. And what we did is we sold, um, server side licenses, uh, to one-stop shop e-store. So website e-commerce site and, uh, payment abilities to, to large national banks. Um, and literally fell into it by following, Uh, the publisher over there where she ran marketing. And uh, since then, uh, you know, learned a lot. And it's a great community, a lot of uh, smart people. More importantly, it's fun to uh, push uh, the envelope um, and, you know, start pushing e-commerce and new solutions on e-commerce in, you know, 99, 2000, um, moving up to mobile payments, uh, moving into, you know, all these new network tokens and all these new things from that perspective. So it's been great.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely get into some of those, like, you know, newer technologies. E-store is definitely a term I haven't heard in a very long time. <laughs> uh, so thanks for dropping that. You know, you also have over 20 patents related to payment applications. You know, can you talk a little bit about what some of those patents are and where they came from? Yeah,
1: yeah. A lot of uh, that that work happened while uh, I was at Visa. My job there was... Um, Uh, overseeing innovation for our our global processing group. And it was actually a lot of fun where, you know, Visa has what's called VisaNet. It's a central uh, uh, hub, processing hub, uh, that they use globally to connect, you know, 90 million merchants with, you know, four, five, six billion cardholders. And uh, what I was asked is, what else can we do with this network? Um, you know, and it's it is old messaging. It's all runs on the ISO 8583 spec, which uh, uh, it was challenging to say. Okay, using this spec that works really, really, really well for real time authorizations. How can we add additional value out to the merchant ecosystem? Uh, the consumer ecosystem, as well as other entrants into um, uh, the, the financial technology and financial service space. Um, and that's where a lot of those uh, uh, patents came out of, of things uh, such as real-time redemption, um, uh, doing things with the receipt data that's that's printed off or messaged to you, um, real-time messaging, a time of authorization, all of these, these things that um, you know, things around network tokens as well. So all of these things that we're seeing come to fruition now, um, which is which is a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, it must be really rewarding to see this work that, you know, you did maybe, uh, you know, at least a few years ago, now actually being turned into something that is actually being used uh, has technology applied to it and is serving, you know, a variety of different purposes within the industry to make you know payments better, make them more secure, uh, you know, what have you.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It was it was fun too because I was there and then I left to co-found a startup called Staffly, which was a two-sided marketplace uh, for staffing. Um, and and it was interesting because again, Visa is a two-sided marketplace. You have uh, sellers and you have uh, payers, uh, and you know they call it a four-party model because you have banks jammed in between. But again, at Staffly, we're doing the same thing where we were. Uh, accepting payments from uh, our customers and then having to push those payments out to uh, our, our, our employees or what we call staffers. So it's just fun to see the different applications to two sided networks uh, and, and actually going out and building that as well.
0: Yeah, and that's something that you, know, you and I have in common where we both you know, started uh, technology focused staffing companies at one point in our lives. So today you're head of FinTech business and growth at Skyflow. You know, what does that consist of and how did you actually come to work at Skyflow?
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, my job is really looking at the uh, financial service space and seeing where um, you know, there, there's application that's needed for what Skyflow does. Um, and, you know, as from a Skyflow perspective, we provide a data privacy vault. Um, and when you look at the, the financial service payment fintech space, there's two sets of sensitive data. Um, The first is PII data, so personally identifiable information. Uh, The second is payment data. And um, understanding in in, um, what Skyflow has um, from a centralized um, uh, technology perspective, and then figuring out how to make that applicable uh, into the um, financial service space, payment space, fintech space, crypto space, and so on. Um, and that's my job, in and, and taking again our core, which is really really strong, um, making some minor modifications, enhancements to it, so it's applicable to the market, and then bringing it out to the masses. There um, is is my job here, and it's, it's a lot of fun. And then. Going out and supporting our sales team and figuring out the best way to bring this to market and all that and partnerships and, and those so it's it's a great role. What brought me to um, Skyflow? So I've known Onshu for a long time. Um, actually, at Wells Fargo, uh, I brought in uh, Salesforce. He was at Salesforce at the time um, as Salesforce's first enterprise banking customer. Um, And you can imagine what that conversation was like to go into my compliance team that has all of our uh, uh, customer data sitting on old mainframes and saying, I want to put it in the cloud and uh, just going through that. But Anshu and I got to know each other well at that time. Um, And then when we put out the uh, RFP to build Zelle at the time, he got involved from a Salesforce perspective there. And we've just stayed in touch ever since. Um, And then when he told me about this, you know, when it was uh, still... Um, you know, it was more than a bullet point in his head, but it was it was starting to get some legs. Um, instantly saw the value. You know, I could have used this at Wells Fargo, Skyflow's solution. I could have used this at Visa, and I could have used this at Staffly. So, seeing the the, the different realms from a pure startup all the way up to large, you know, Fortune-sized companies, and the applicability of the solution was was big.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, you touched on this a little bit earlier, and also, you know, just talking about sort of the this idea of, you know, moving these existing banking systems that are running on these, you know, on-prem to to the cloud is probably, uh, you know, something that has been uh, an evolution in our industry for, you know, the past, you know, 10, 20 years. And you've been working in, in particular, in like the payment space for a long time. Can you, you know, maybe talk a little bit about the the evolution in the space from you know where you started your career to where we are today from like a technology perspective
1: yeah absolutely so again I, I shared about Natopia we literally were you know shipping off CDCs at the time with with our our software on it to to load up on a server uh, inside the mainframe systems at um, Citibank Bank of America you know Wells Fargo and so on so, um, Wells Fargo then, um, when e-commerce you know, was taking off, uh, we built out large multi-seller platforms, again, on mainframe systems. Um, so at the time, uh, eBay uh, had BuildPoint, and it was a JV between Wells Fargo and, and uh, eBay, which again was you know, the, the first iteration of what PayPal was. Um, Then we supported PayPal on that same system and mainframe system. And then we added other capabilities on that system, again, where you could have multiple merchants plugged in in one pipe into the uh, merchant processing ecosystem. Um, The the challenge there, though, was it was expensive to, to maintain. Um, and have these large data centers, you know, all these boxes and machines up and running. And, you know, the cost uh, to do that, you had to have great scale uh, to, to uh, keep those systems up and running at that, um, at the speed and the reliability they need. Um, fast forward to today, um, and it takes all that away by being able to move things to the cloud, um, and instantly scale your infrastructure both vertically and horizontally as needed depending on the demands uh, against those systems and those applications which is which is huge. Um, are there challenges with it? absolutely you know there's there's the old guard and the new guard from a data security perspective where a lot of times it's this is the way we do it and the way we've always done it um, from you know a banking perspective which, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll bang my head against the wall having those conversations or in the past I have um, versus, no, this is where the future is. We got to get there and got to go do this. And when you start peeling back the onion of what those actual concerns are and you get outside of the, 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 the hardheadedness of this is how we've always done it um, and start digging into, okay, what are the reasons that you're concerned about moving this to the cloud? And you can start to really have a good conversation about that and get folks comfortable with this happening not only from a a, a similar security uh, posture but also the the value add and the new benefits you can build on to on top now and move a heck of a lot faster um and you know do a lot more iteration quickly a lot more testing quickly and cost effectively
0: yeah in um you know a recent episode where uh, we talked to some folks from from Google Cloud about you know building secure CI/CD pipeline. You know one of the points that they made in terms of transitioning the pro- cloud from sort of on prem is, um, besides the scale that you get, in some ways it actually makes uh, you know it can make privacy and security. Easier for companies because you're kind of offloading some of that to you know the public cloud. And as long as those systems are set up in a way that best practices are enforced and you're you can kind of take some of that responsibility off your plate. And of course, there's definitely things that you have to be thinking about. The the scale of a mishap at the cloud when you're you know scaling worldwide, of course, that impact can be massive. But there is a lot of advantages for moving to the cloud just even beyond sort of the vertical and horizontal scaling that you get even from a sort of privacy and security perspective
1: yeah absolutely absolutely and there are things that will never you know I'd never say never but uh, would be would be a far stretch to move up to the cloud right when you look at Visanet um, mm-hmm. it's large authorization uh, platform when you look at what MasterCard does when you look at the clearinghouse that's moving trillions of dollars every night, Or the Nacho Rails moving, you know, trillions of dollars every night. Will this be in the cloud? Um, Not anytime soon, Um, uh, but never say never, right?
0: Right. Yeah. So I want to transition to talking a bit about, you know, payment processing and payment systems. And I think it's hard to talk about payments without touching on, you know, PCI DSS. So what is PCI DSS? You know, where did it come from?
1: Yeah. So so PCI um, came from the 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 payment. Card Industry Council, I think is what it is. I'm, I'm not quite sure, 100% sure there, but it was a, an association created by the, uh, the network. So Visa and MasterCard came together and created this association to come up with guidelines of how to uh, protect card data um, from fraudsters, uh, essentially. Um, and it came up with a number of different guidelines to do that both for what is called a card present payment, meaning I'm present to give my card or tap my phone at a point of sale, um, or card not present where it is done behind a computer or through a screen or an app uh, to them. And there's different guidelines around that, but ultimately it was uh, to, to come up with guidelines as well as a uh, framework to certify that you are uh, upholding uh, these different PCI guidelines.
0: And how does a company go about achieving you know, essentially PCI compliance?
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and, and there's there's two facets of it. When you look at the the two sides of the network, right? You have PCI guidelines for what are called issuers, or people that have are issuing the card number or cards out to individuals or, or companies. There, the guidelines, um, you know, there are two different levels of PCI compliance: level one and level two. And what it entails there is, is it's cut off based on the number of transactions and or card holders you have, um, to either be level one or level two. Um, level one's the highest level of uh, PCI compliance. There, um, there's a checklist of you know 400 plus uh, controls that are looked at, um, looking at uh, your technology. Uh, are the cards encrypted if they're stored? Are the cards encrypted in transit? Um, you know, all of those types of things, you know, key rotation, whatever it may be from that standpoint. It also encompasses um, policies uh, of the company as well. So for example, I'm an issuer in my customer service team. I have a policy where they should not write down a 16-digit card number on a post-it note, uh, because again, that's not a secure way to do it. So uh, it's full encompassing, you know, the two spectrums of what that compliance looks for uh, level one is um, uh, you have to go in and obviously set up your own systems and run through that, um, and then bring in an auditor um, that will then come in and audit um, all 400 plus of those uh, checks uh, around that. And it's a quite extensive process, you know, from start to finish, you know, three, six, nine, twelve months depending on your posture. Um, so that's level one for issuers. Level two is a self-assessment. Again, the exposure is not as big because it's lower amount of cards um, and lower amount of transactions. So the exposure is not as big if if there is, um, they don't need to have the audit come through if there's a a breach or those things, but they still need to self-attest that they are doing all of those things. And uh, there are questionnaires that you can go through and, and go through that self-assessment uh, uh, or attestment yourself um, and come out of that with your level two compliance. Um, switching gears then to the merchant side, and the merchant side is actually where more uh, fraud has actually happened. Um, and this is where you know, uh, bad guys, bad actors will uh, breach and get card data. Um, and there, there's four different levels of uh, PCI compliance, level one through level four. Level four is a small business, you know, selling, you know, a couple thousand dollars a, a week, if if not more, um, out of, you know, a, a, I think your local mom and pop shop, um, all the way up to level one, which are large retailers doing six million transactions or more. Um, and again, it's a similar process where level one audit, full extent, Moving to level four, two, three, and two different levels of self uh, assessment, um, as well as network scans at level two.
0: And in terms you mentioned, you know, for something like PCI level one, there's this external audit that's happening to make sure that you're actually doing the things in the, in the checklist. Who's that? Where's that auditor come from?
1: Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a, there's an industry around uh, PCI auditors today and there's some big, big audit auditors out there that do this, um, that are experts in that space. So, um, uh, card, you know, merchants or issuers or, you know, anywhere along the value chain will hire an auditor, um, you know, and come in and, you know, the costs range from, you know, 20, 50, a hundred thousand dollars to do to get that audit done. Again, depending on what their infrastructure looks like and what they need to look at, um, you know. And there are different ways to go about getting PCI compliance. You know, looking at the merchant side, um, a small business today uh, is single-threaded, meaning they work with one merchant processor. Um, that merchant processor will provide, as part of their service, um, a complete PCI compliance solution to them uh, from a technology standpoint. Um, they'll also provide policies to them of what they can and cannot do um, with uh, the card data from a, a policy perspective, um, and then in those cases, the merchant will go in and do their self uh to say that they're doing all of these things and they've implemented the merchant processing solution the way that they told them to, and they're done and fat and happy and and you know move on to the next next fire that the small business. Uh, has to deal with. Um, moving up to level one, um, again, um, there a lot of times they will work with multiple processors and or have different needs for that card data outside of just processing payments through one payment processor. A lot of times they will set up and build out their own PCI infrastructure that needs to be compliant. And that's really complicated and complex to do um, and again, the auditor will come in then and look at the four hundred plus checks and go through it line by line, asking questions, observing, looking at code, uh, checking, you know, policies around key rotation, as an example. Um, and it's it's an extensive process to do. Number one, number two, it's super expensive to build as well um, and maintain.
0: Right, and so someone buys essentially technology that's already, you know, PCI compliant. There's still a, a responsibility on the purchaser or the merchant in this case to do the the self-assessment and, and show that they actually are following, you know, the, the best practices and policies of PCI. Is that right? Yes,
1: uh, that is correct. That is correct. Um, And, you know, as an example, we work with uh, merchants across the board, level one to level four, and we actually provide that capability as part of our service to them, but they'll come in and depending on what level they are, they'll answer, you know, 15, 20, 40 questions uh, and go through that. And if they've implemented Skyflow, for example, or if they're using Stripe or, you know, Authorize.net, it's the same process. They'll go come in and answer those questions with their service provider and, and get that, uh, assessment and certification done.
0: Mm-hmm. And if someone does the self-assessment, they, you know, become compliant, but it turns out that they are indeed, you know, copying, uh, you know, 16 digit numbers down onto post-its or, you know, some other type of violation. Essentially, what is the sort of consequence of a violation?
1: Um, yeah. So it, it, it's across the board. When you look at some of the large breaches, what happens is um, the, the acquiring bank or the bank that, that owns that relationship with the networks um, will levy fines uh, to those merchants, um, ultimately being dictated or, or directed out of the network itself. So Visa or MasterCard, if there's a large uh, merchant breach um, and they find that um, you know, there were vulnerabilities or people weren't following PCI compliance, um, they will levy fines for that uh, to get it fixed. Um, or if they're out of compliance, levy a fine until it's fixed. Um, so there are financial penalties. The other thing is when you look at those large breaches, there's the, you know, I call it the, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times damage that happens as well. You know, having that front page headline from a brand perspective uh, really hurts. Um, from a, a branding, you know, a trust of your customer standpoint as well. Um, so that's what happens if, if you're not compliant, um, you know, you will, you could be fined and ultimately they can, you could be shut off from accepting payments.
0: Hey there, Sean here. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Partially Redacted. If so, please subscribe so you can always check out the latest episode and help others find the show by leaving a rating and review. Final thing before I get you back to the interview. If you're interested in privacy and security, have a challenge or issue you want to discuss, or want to share your expertise, please join the partially redacted community at skyflow.com slash community. All right, now back to the show. And then in, in this situation, you know, you mentioned how complicated building out, you know, essentially PCI compliant infrastructure is. What from a technical standpoint would actually, if someone wanted to take that on, you know, how long does that uh, a company to do? And sort of what level of expertise do they need to actually, you know, sort of build out that infrastructure?
1: Yeah. Yeah. They're, you know, breaking it out into three components, maybe four. Um, The first is, you know, capturing the data securely. Um, And this is for card, not present payments, just to be clear. So, when a when a, a customer is entering their card data into your mobile app or your website or, or whatever it may be, um, you need to be able to capture that data securely um, and having the right you know uh, security metrics and certificates behind that data. So uh, when it is captured, it's sent directly in uh, in an encrypted fashion uh, coming in. The second piece then is where is that data landing? Um, and you know building out an isolated, Uh, environment uh, just for PCI as a best practice Um, in having that data be there and live there. And it needs to be uh, encrypted um, as well uh, from that standpoint. The other thing then, and the third component is you need to use that encrypted data then. And what does that mean? You need to send it off uh, to your processor to actually run an authorization. Um, and and see if the card's good and not. So you have to build all of that connectivity out to the processors again, using the various uh, protocols that they have to to secure those pipes. The processors dictate. Um, and then the fourth piece is you need to also have access to that data. So for example. Um, when I'm on Amazon, you know, I have three or four different cards loaded on Amazon, I need to see those cards uh, through my portal on Amazon, my customer portal, and they need to be able to show those to me. And a lot of times they will show the last four of that, but building out that whole reveal aspect as well, having secure pipes to do that. The other use case is customer service managing my card number, you know, saying, hey, um, I need to issue a refund, Sean, um, should I issue it to your card number with the last four digits of one two three four? Um, how do you expose that car data in a governed manner uh, to the folks that need it is another use case and something that they need to think through and build. I'm glossing over this at a very high level. There's more details to the ins and outs of the infrastructure and those things, but it's it is complex.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, it sounds like you know something like. Just securely storing the credit cards is really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of this like really this long tail of things that you need to be dealing with. and then there's there's you know the issues like a, a card rejection that you need to be able to handle and uh, expiration of a card and and then all the the um, use cases that you mentioned of how do you reveal some portion of the cards to a certain type of user and so on. so it really starts to. To, to build up the the number of uh, things that you have to kind of build and maintain and take care yeah. of.
1: Yeah. And we didn't even touch on chargebacks, mm-hmm. which is another complete animal, but yeah. Yeah.
0: So obviously it doesn't make sense for a lot of businesses that want to do payments to build out their own, you know, PCI compliant infrastructure. It's a lot to take on, especially if it's not, you know, the company's core competency. So how do companies that want to take payments typically go about, you know, essentially getting PCI compliance, but, not having to build out all that infrastructure, but still are able to actually execute and charge credit cards.
1: Yeah. So so the journey that, that I've seen and, and we see all the time is um, I, I set up and I get going and I work with one processor and that processor is a one-stop shop for my entire environment. So they will give me the ability to tokenize and vault cards um, as well as process those cards through them. They'll give me secure SDKs and iframes to capture the card data. They'll give me secure, you know, SDKs and iframes to reveal the car data through my app and those things. So it's, it's a one-stop shop um, for those. And, you know, companies like um, Stripe, uh, Checkout.com, um, you know, um, uh, Authorize.net, there's a whole PayPal, you know, Braintree, a lot of different uh, 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 service providers or you know, PSPs, payment service providers that provide that in the U.S. and globally. Um, so that's step one. What we see, though, from a pattern perspective, is that's great. Um, but um, merchants, um, payment acceptors, gateways, whoever it may be in the e-commerce ecosystem, mobile payment ecosystem, outgrow a one single-threaded processor. And have outgrown them for a number of reasons, um, you know, and it all comes down to driving more revenue, um, uh, both top line as well as bottom line. Um, the first is I want to launch a new market. You know, I'm, I'm selling today in the US and I want to launch uh, Western Europe, for example. Um, I use Stripe today here in the US, but I want to use uh, the PSP Molly in Europe. Um, now, what am I going to do? Uh, am I going to have two different checkout flows? Um, one with mollies and one with um, stripes. No, this is where companies like Skyflow come in and we will provide a centralized vault to them where you can route payments out to the various PSPs that you may have. So global expansion one, entering a new market. The other is um, uh, reliability. So you know, if I'm processing millions and millions of dollars or transactions a day, um, and I'm reliant on one processor. what happens when those lights go off, um, I'm out of business. So also having a failover uh, behind that as uh, well as important. Um, the third is, um, you know, payment um, cost optimization. Um, you know, different card types have different rates that are negotiated as you move up uh, from a, a volume perspective with different providers, you will pay different rates so you can um, uh, optimize where cards are being routed to you from a, uh, a cost perspective. Um, moving along that realm, you also can route based on approval rates. Um, you know, some processors have better approval rates for prepaid with uh, certain banks than others, uh, you know, maybe debit cards. So you can optimize routing based on card type uh, as well. Um, And then the last is really uh, cost savings, um, being able to have a a a unique uh, vault yourself, and being able to go as a merchant and negotiate amongst various processors to get better rates ultimately as well.
0: Yeah, so you get sort of uh, that negotiating power by having that flexibility to essentially work with multiple payment processors.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But for me, it really comes down to you know, everyone talks about you know. Lock, you know, uh, credit card processor lock-in. Um, credit card processing lock-in is fantastic if you only need one processor. There's, you know, it, and you should, you know, should work with that. It's when you outgrow that and you want to have that flexibility to drive more revenue. It's not a lock-in. It's, it's uh, how do I expand my business? Uh, how do I optimize my business? And that's really where, um, you know, vaulting comes in to be able to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. And is there ever, you know, if you have a business that's doing a lot of transactions, is there an advantage for them to go directly to, say, like, like Visa and using Visa APIs versus using, uh, you know, a third-party payment processor that essentially does the connection to the Visa or whoever card network that they need to uh, send yeah. a transaction through?
1: Yeah, So it, it, it's interesting. Um, so Visa, we'll pick on Visa here, but, mm-hmm. but networks have, Visa and MasterCard have what's called a four-party model. Um, which means that um, there are four parties involved. The only way that I can process a payment through Visa or MasterCard is I need to have a bank sponsor. So, and in, in bank sponsors are the only members of Visa's network to do that. So historically, bank processors also had their own processing platforms or went out and licensed those. Um, is, is, is where this started and where it happened. And then from there, banks have also uh, licensed their sponsorship. Um, so they will uh, sponsor um, Stripe. Stripe's not a bank. Um, the Stripe has banks sitting behind them that have sponsored them to have access into Visa and MasterCard to, to process payments. Um, with that said, Um, Visa and MasterCard both are starting to open up direct access directly to their network, which is fairly sticky, right? Since if I'm a bank and I'm the one taking all the risk, I also want to take uh, a part of that processing revenue as well and not have it just, you know, licensing out my sponsorship. So it's uh, it's interesting to see that starting to happen in the ecosystem. And, you know, the, the network's opening up direct access to different players in the payment ecosystem there. But again, ultimately the sponsor bank uh, is the one that you need to work with to uh, be able to to process payments with them. Um, As far as going to your question around benefits, um, you know, if if I go directly into the network as a merchant acceptor, um, as a merchant itself, there are a whole bunch of things I have to build. Um, You know, reporting, um, re-attempts, uh chargeback management you know the list goes on and on and on and there's where the processor gateways airdrop solutions in for you to do that you don't have to build it
0: yeah it's, 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 you know, it's a big a big task to take on so unless it really is going to make a difference to your business and, and there's, and really there's no sense.
1: reason to do it I mean it, there are a lot of really good solutions out there to do it and if I you know when I had a team of engineers at it, Staffly it's like do I want them to focus on building out you know all those processing capabilities, or do we just use a payment processor and gateway that already have it and deploy my my resources to go out and build new capabilities and features um, for our our customers um, instead of focusing on their infrastructure stack or payment stack.
0: Exactly. So if I'm a business that's working with Skyflow or I'm working with one of these payment processors, and the payment processor is in charge of uh, you know, collecting the card details, charging the cards. Essentially, what is the processor or Skyflow giving me in return so that I can actually perform sort of transactions against the cards without me seeing any of the details and sort of being exposed to the the PCI compliance scope?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I always steal the phrase shift left. And there are a couple meanings in that in data privacy standpoint. But shift left in payments means that the further you can move and isolate your environment from actually seeing and touching card data, the better you are. And that's what um, happens from a vaulting perspective. So step one is the SDK and iframe to capture it directly when it's entered, then landing in the vault, and then being able to send that uh, payment um, to wherever it needs to go and orchestrate that payment from a Skyflow perspective uh, between multiple uh, payment processors on behalf of our customers. Uh, and that's what we do and we do very well. And, and more importantly, we give control to our customers to actually own those API integrations with their payment processor. So they're not relying on us. We're giving them the keys to the kingdom to, to drive their business and do what's needed instead of them you know, ultimately relying on us. Where what we do is we focus on what we do really, really well, which is protecting uh, sensitive data and then um, governing or giving uh, governance tools to orchestrate that data in a, in a highly controlled manner. Um, and that's our expertise in what we do, where they're going to have a better understanding of how to route that payment. Uh, they know their business than we ever will. And, and I won't pretend that we will uh, know their business. So we're giving them the keys to do that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. And, you know, there's been a lot of development, I think, in, you know, the space of uh, trying to make, reduce fraud, improve, you know, privacy and security around the collection and use of of credit card information. And, you know, one of those things that you mentioned earlier, which is uh, network tokenization, and this is something that uh, is starting to become more and more, uh, uh, you know, prevalent in the, the industry. How does network tokenization you know, improve security, improve privacy? And I guess maybe a good place to start with that question is what is network tokenization?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so network tokenization was introduced um, a few years back when uh, Apple Pay launched. Um, and Apple Pay gives you the ability to tap your phone Uh, at a point of sale, and it passes over your your payment credentials, your card number, everyone thinks it's your card number, to the point of sale, and then they process it like they normally would. What's happened, though, is is in partnership between Visa and and Apple, is um, your card number doesn't actually sit in your phone. Um, What has happened and what was built was the ability to provide a token um, that uh, translates to your card number that actually sits in the phone. Um, and as that token then pro- travels throughout the um, hops to get to Visa, Visa says, oh, this is Sean's token. Let me exchange that for the actual card number, the PAN, and then send that off to the issuer. Um, and the reason that, that, that came out and it's important is it, it reduces the scope of the actual card data and the vulnerabilities of all those hops getting to the network uh, to be stolen or compromised. Um, So this happened uh, starting out with uh, the wallets, so Apple Pay, Google Pay, and Samsung Pay all support this protocol today. Um, The other thing that happened around that time, or actually happened before that, was EMV was being rolled out in Europe and was widely adopted. And in the U.S., uh, it was starting to be adopted and and, uh, incented to be adopted by the networks Um, you know, five, six, seven years ago. And so what's happened with EMV is it's a much more secure transaction for card present transactions. Um, You dip your card or insert your card uh, into the point of sale and a cryptogram is actually created at that time, a one-time use cryptogram that's sent to the network. So it's completely uh, cut back on fraudulent transactions for card present transactions. So what happens? All the fraud shifts to card not present. Um, because there's not as a grade of security there. More recently, um, the networks have introduced network tokens for card-not-present payments, um, and this is something Skyflow provides. But now, when I enroll my card to be stored with the merchant for recurring transactions or card-on-file, um, uh, we we go and get a network token for that in our vault. And now, instead of sending through the card number. Um, we send through from end to end up to the network, the token, uh, which is step one of that. Step two, for every authorization, there's also a retrieval of a cryptogram. So again, it's a one-time use cryptogram that's associated with that merchant, with that cardholder, with that specific transaction. Um, So fraudsters are stuck (laughs) um, because Mm -hmm. of that cryptogram. And it's a much more secure payment uh, around that. Um, So what we're seeing there is three benefits. One is increased approval rates. So if I know this is a network token transaction, is an issuing bank, uh, as well as Visa, uh, I'm going to approve that, more likely approve it, um, because it's less likely to be fraud. Uh, Step two, um, uh, so you have higher approval rates. Number two, you have lower fraud. Uh, because it is a more secure transaction. And then number three, um, Visa's introduced interchange uh, uh, relief. So on average, it's 10 basis points less to process a network token transaction uh, versus not having a network token uh, for that auth, which will save a lot of money for merchants uh, as they go down this.
0: So yeah, so it sounds like you know besides the sort of business benefits of it from a security perspective with network tokenization, you're getting the benefit of essentially uh, you know swapping out the card number for something that's non-sensitive, essentially a random string in the form of a token. But with network tokenization, you're you're reducing the number of hops in the network where the Actual card numbers ever shared, so it reduces the the essentially the attack surface, uh, potential tax surface. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. And and you know, in the U.S. market, it's coming out. Uh, India introduced legislation, um, RBI legislation, where they're mandating uh, all cards to be removed from the ecosystem, and everyone has to use. Uh, card tokens or network tokens to do it there. So it's not just a U.S. or Western European phenomenon. It's it's happening globally, and governments are stepping in to ban it.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like with the also the addition of the cryptogram, then even you know someone somehow got a hold of the token and was able to call the APIs. They still can't really do anything with it because the they would need to be able to generate the one-time cryptogram associated with the actual transaction. Exactly. So another technology that is, you know, starting to um, also become more prevalent in the payment space is 3D Secure. So what is 3D Secure? and Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that does from a security and privacy perspective? Yeah. So
1: um, 3D Secure, 3DS, uh, was introduced in uh, Western Europe, Um most to start, and it's it's much more prevalent there than here in North America. Um, what it is is a time of card enrollment or time of purchase. Um, so it's one thing, you know, if I if I took your card, Sean, I could enroll that in stored on file and get network token associated with it. How do I stop that from happening? So what they're doing is they 3ds is a protocol now to um, uh, validate that you when you enter that card number into a merchant's website or an app, um, they're they're doing a number of checks behind the scenes um, to make sure that, that actually is you, Sean, uh, entering that. Um, if they're not able to do that discreetly, um, they have a challenge process then where they will actually direct you to log into that account. So, you know, I I have a Chase card, I have a Wells Fargo card. Um, if I use my Chase card, it will actually have me uh, log into my Chase. Online banking or Chase credit card uh, 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 account to authenticate myself and make sure it is me. Um, so what this is doing, 3DS, is it's literally stopping or preventing fraudsters from just enrolling, you know, stolen cards in there because it's another layer of authentication to do that.
0: Yeah, um, sounds like uh, it's it's almost like a, a like a two FA but for payments.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, 90 80, percent of the time, it's done discreetly. So, you know, device fingerprinting, uh, patterns, IP address, you know, all all those things, you know, that, that I, you know, I don't have the ins and outs of what they're doing, but um, they're doing a lot of these checks discreetly um, uh, before they'll do the, the actual challenge itself if needed.
0: Yeah, there's an amazing amount of sort of like technology and research and innovation that's gone in, a, in the, you know, the payment world to prevent fraud from you know the ai that's used to detect a credit card transaction that looks you know different than a regular credit card transaction that i'm doing like yeah, i'm, I'm yeah. often amazed at you know the alerts i get where um you know essentially somehow my card got out somewhere and and i get an alert where you know transaction happened and they, they catch it you know a lot of the times it's, it's really really amazing the amount of innovation that's going on
1: absolutely it's a funny story about that uh um, when I was at Visa, we are testing out the ability to send alerts when your card was being used. Um, and I was part of the pilot program there. And, and uh, my wife and I share a card. And at the time, she was at home with the kids. Um, and she, every time she made a purchase... I would get a text message, and <laughs> I, I, I laughed. I said, "Either this can give me a heart attack or cause a divorce because it's like you just bought what at Nordstrom's." <laughs> you know, in those things, so it was pretty funny. But the technology sure has uh, advanced there, uh, which is which is great. One other thing with 3DS, that's really important is if and when this uh, uh, card is validated or the user is validated, there's what's called a liability shift for that transaction. So, if there is a fraudulent transaction, the liability for that transaction is actually on the issuer now, and not the merchant, um, which is big, because today for all fraud or historically for fraudulent transactions, the merchant ate the entire cost of that when a chargeback comes through, uh, which is very painful for merchants to have happen.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, kind of turning our attention or, or thoughts to you know innovation in this space, where do you see, you know, what are the, I guess, like big gaps or problems that the payment industry uh, or, you know, payment processing industry needs to try to address? And where do you see payment technology going in the next, you know, five to 10 years?
1: So from a, a, a payment standpoint, again, it's, it's continuing to improve the, the, the the validity of the transaction and making sure that you know as, as payments continue to evolve and and, and become faster, uh, there are more touch points or in- entry points for payments. You know whether it's a, a connected device now or your car, uh, those things is is continuing to ensure that um, the the fraud is is in bay uh, that the networks are opening up. Um, as far as where it's going, again. When you have a one centralized network connecting 90 million merchants to billions of unique IDs or cardholders, um, there are vast different use cases you can do with that network. Whether it's pushing payments, you know, OTC payment uh, right in the debit rails to now push money in real time from account to account um, to you know all the connected devices out there. You know, I pull up into the, the gas station. There's some fun stuff we worked on at Visa. Is I pull into the gas station. The pump knows who I am. I get out and fill up my car. Um, and that's done either from a connected car or uh, me as an individual there. Um, or, you know, I pull up into the drive-thru. They know who I am. And, and my, my car is now a connected device. Um, you know, at Samsung, we did some stuff with Samsung Pay with smart refrigerators. Um it's like, hey, you're you're, you know, three fourths of the way out of milk. Um, let's put a new order in and milk. And you know, the milk shows up and, and charges your Samsung Pay account overnight from your Samsung refrigerator. You know, building out this whole ecosystem of connected devices, but having the payment um uh happening behind the scenes, uh and it's a seamless experience across the board um from a friction standpoint or frictionless standpoint.
0: So because there's a lot of, you know, innovation going on in the space and also a lot for even someone who's, you know, handling credit cards to kind of get up to speed on, you know, what their responsibilities are. What would you suggest someone to, that wants to kind of stay on top of these things? You know, where, what resources should they seek out where they can, uh, you know, learn more and keep up to date on, on the innovation going on?
1: Call me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I, I love talking about this stuff, too. And, you know, we have a lot of really good engagements uh, uh, sharing this. Um, there are a lot of different resources out there, you know, from, from payments.com to see some of the latest and greatest trends. Um, there's some great conferences out there as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, podcasts uh, around this. Uh, and it really depends on what angle you want to look at. Is it the regulatory side? Um, is it the technology side, the security side? Um, th- there are a lot of different, uh, uh, resources out there to, to, to stay up to speed.
0: Great. You know, Bjorn, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Uh, you know, it's always a, a pleasure to chat with you. And I said it at the top of the show, I get to learn so much from talking to guests like yourself. So thanks again. And I'm sure, you know, the listeners are going to learn a lot as well.
1: Thanks Sean. It's been fun.